Whether you are a brand new camper or you've been with us for every season, welcome. We're so happy to have you. If you like what you hear, there's a lot you can do about it. You can leave us a review, you can tell a friend, you can become a patron, which is sliding scale, so you can access bonus stuff for as little as a dollar a month, or you can get some truly unique and badass merch at our Tee Public store. I design most of them based off of vintage travel t-shirts, and I wear them constantly. All right, that's enough out of folksy ad copy, Katie. I'm in the mood for a ghost story. Everybody, you're listening to Scary Stories from Camp Roanoke. This is a podcast where we tell supposedly true scary stories to each other. My name is Katie Wiggins. I'm Morgan Campbell. And today is a little different because last episode we were talking about some spooky Michigan stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, spooky is a strong word. No, actually, spooky is a a goofy word. It's appropriate. (laughs) Um... It was very lighthearted fun. Yeah. And I had a couple Michiganders message me. Um, what? <laughs> I know. I'm so lucky. I've <laughs> nabbed the Great Lakes region. Um, Finally. Well, we have. Um, and somebody messaged me, uh, a woman named Olivia, and she said, but have you heard the Dogman's song? No. And she said that they play this every Halloween time in... I guess Michigan. <laughs> so I wanna, I wanna play you the first. I just wanna play you a little bit of it. A cool summer morning in early June is when the legend began at a nameless logging camp in Wexford County, where the Manistee River ran. Eleven lumberjacks near the Garland Swamp found an animal they thought was a dog. In a playful mood, they chased it around till it ran inside a hollow log. and then it's just a series of uh talk talk singing about experiences people have had with the dog man so that's like the youtube era where they would take viral news and video moments and remix them into like boppy songs and i feel like they did that but they actually made it chill and good (laughs) whoever was on the keyboards oh my god living amazing stuff I can't. It's five minutes long, so I can't imagine this being played on a radio. But apparently, it is. Okay, so that's my piece of paranormal news. Is this is to add to the Michigan (laughs) Dogman vibes? Dogman vibes. The stories that I'm going to tell you is from an absolutely a banger of an episode of Celebrity Ghost Stories. Work! Okay, perfect. Good. Which I haven't visited in a long time. But they have fantastic stories, and I grew up with Celebrity Ghost Stories, Mm -hmm. which is crazy to say, but really, Celebrity Ghost Stories was my intro to a lot of people that I had never heard of before in my life. Because they get a lot of obscure for our age group. Well, yeah, people that were popular decades ago, and sometimes many decades ago, and you're like, oh, well, I didn't watch that show or never have even heard of it. And then Mm -hmm. they just pop up on Celebrity Ghost Stories. So this is season two, episode one. 
Beautiful. And I am going to be telling you three stories. Unfortunately, Corey Feldman's story had to be axed, but it was just a it was just a heartwarming tale about how his grandparents intervened in an unhappy marriage, and that's not why we're here. No happy ghosts. So as you know. 75% of Americans believe that there are events that take place that cannot be explained. Over half of these people have experienced paranormal events themselves, and the identity of some of these people may surprise you. <laughs> so our first storyteller is Michael Imperioli. He is a regulation hottie. He's a, a major character in The Sopranos. I don't know if you've ever watched The Sopranos. I've never seen it, but I've seen snippets. I'm like... Yeah, he's a beautiful Italian man. Gorgeous forehead. There I said it. <laughs> there. Sue me. So, Michael Imperioli, 1996, pre-Sopranos. It's after a breakup... And he's living in New York and he decides to move into the Chelsea Hotel. The Chelsea is a famous, famous hotel. It's a big old hotel in New York that he explains feels like it has a lot of history as you're walking through it. So he's a struggling actor in New York City and he's excited about sort of bumping elbows with the eccentric characters that he would meet in the Chelsea Hotel. I have been around the Chelsea Hotel a few times because there's an art supply store directly across the street from it. Nice. And uh, I think it was under construction, or at least the facade was under construction most of the times I ever saw it. Uh, so unfortunately, I never got to have a terrible experience there, as a lot of famous people tend to. So in the description of Cheryl Tippins's book, Inside the Dream Palace, The Life and Times of New York's Legendary Chelsea Hotel, this is how... It describes the Chelsea. It says, since its founding by a utopian-minded French architect in 1884, New York's Chelsea Hotel has been a hotbed of artistic invention and inspiration. Cultural luminaries from Bob Dylan to Sid Vicious, I'm not sure I would call Sid Vicious a cultural luminary, just saying, <laughs> Thomas Wolfe, Thomas Wolfe to Andy Warhol, Dylan Thomas to D.D. Ramone, all made the Chelsea the largest and longest-lived artist community in the world. Inside the Dream Palace tells the hotel's story from its earliest days as a cooperative community through its pop art, rock and roll, punk periods, creative community, New York City, la di da. I've so that's... seen some after parties. Oh, it's seen some after parties. <laughs> Michael moves to the eighth floor and he begins mingling with some of the other residents. He's... Uh, keeps company with a, a lesbian pornographer, is directly below him. There's a dominatrix that's roaming around, a goth junkie couple. These are fixtures at the time that he moves in. And Dee Dee Ramone is also somewhere. <laughs> I want those neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of really interesting characters. And when he would be introduced to these people and share what floor he lived on, they would always ask if he had met Mary. And he would just be like, no, I haven't met Mary. Oh, my God. He's got the most beautiful voice in the world. It's mm -hmm. so, like, low and husky and sexy. Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he says, he said, it wasn't too straightforward. You should meet this person. It was a little bit loaded. There was, like, a, a strange kind of subtext. And I just assumed it meant she was a very eccentric character mm -hmm. and that I would know her when I saw her because she would be a very distinctive person. But I didn't know her, and I'd figure I'd meet her at some point. 
I love you, Christopher. (laughs) So after he'd been living there for about two months, it was really late at night when he's coming home to his apartment. He's getting in the elevator. It's like three or four in the morning. He gets out of the elevator and he notices that the light in the hallway is dimmer than usual. And then he hears some very light sobbing of a woman. It's coming from the other end of the hall. So he looks at the other end of the hallway, which is extremely long. The hallways are really long. And I imagine narrow. And all the way at the other end is a woman. And she's hunched over with her head down and she's just weeping. And she was wearing a very long black dress that looked like it was from the turn of the century. But he says, you know, everybody dressed, you know, kind of crazy. So what she was wearing was not of note to me at all. Yeah. So it didn't strike me as outrageous. <laughs> but she was sobbing and she looked like she was in a lot of emotional pain. I mean, it is three or four in the morning. <laughs> and he explained that it was almost as if the sound she was making was just like there, not like it was like coming from her mouth. Oh, weird. So he asks, are you okay? Do you need any help? And right after he says that, he hears a loud pop behind him and he turns around immediately and the light in the fixture behind him had just exploded. Oh my God. So the other end of the hallway is bathed in darkness and he turns back to the other end of the hallway where the woman is and she's gone. Oh my God. That's so fucking scary. (laughs) It's messing with so at this point he's just like i guess she was scared by the pop and went inside whatever so he thinks he's just met the eccentric mary that everyone's been talking about and just thinks it was basically just a weird sad interaction yeah so later he runs into some of the people who had initially mentioned her and he says hey i think i met mary she was crying in my hallway wearing clothes from like a hundred years ago And one of the women he was talking to looks at him and said, Mary was a young woman who was in the Chelsea Hotel in 1912. And she was from Buffalo, New York. She had recently gotten married and her husband and her husband's brother went to England on a boat to claim some inheritance. And rather than wait for her husband in Buffalo, she decided to surprise him at the dock when the boat returned to the city. And he would be coming back on the Titanic. <gasps> what? It's a new, really big cruise liner. It, it should be amazing. Oh, my God. I bet it's extravagant. Amazing. Okay. So she travels from Buffalo to New York, checks in. Damn. Then her husband ends up being one of the many frozen bodies in the Atlantic. And when she finds out, she goes back to the... She finds out that there has been... This terrible tragedy, like over a thousand people die. And once she confirms that he was one of them, she goes back to the Chelsea Hotel and she hangs herself in her room. (gasps) Oh my God. So Michael is hearing this and he just gets chills and his hair stands up. And looking back on it, he feels like he saw her in the last moments of her life debating what she was going to do or whether she was going to go on. He felt like he was seeing the last moments of the battle outside of her room before she went inside and hung herself. Stuck in that cycle. He said he spoke to three or four women who had seen Mary and it was all in that exact spot. (gasps) Oh! 
So Michael is really freaked out at this point. Yeah. And he didn't know that it was a ghost when he saw it. He just thought it was another wacky resident of the Chelsea. And now that he's knowing that it was just a freaky, dark specter of insane grief, he just feels freaked out. Yeah. (laughs) So he goes back to his room that night, but it was not comfortable. And he got a terrible night's sleep and he checked out of the Chelsea within a week. Oh my god. (laughs) I think it's fun and spooky and glitzy to stay in a place that has such an amazing history and has had so many insanely important artists and narratives of history take place there. But when you actually experience the real energy of what that means to live in a place with a lot of dark history like the chelsea hotel is where i don't know if you know anything about the sid and nancy situation but uh sid vicious of the sex pistols um after he was out of the band he went and stayed at the chelsea with his girlfriend nancy and in a drug-induced haze they wake up the next morning and she's been stabbed and she's dead and he is arrested for it um and it's still a mystery what happened to nancy it's i i'll include a link to the story about it in case people are not but that's where that's where nancy spongen died and that's like a that's a piece of intense you know, rock and roll and punk history that happened at the Chelsea. Dylan Thomas died there. There's, and you might think about that and be like, crazy rock and roll history. Like, that's so wild. But then when you actually think about it and you sort of take off these layers of veneer of like cool history and distance, it's actually just like two 20 year olds who have drug addictions and yeah. extreme mental health difficulties. And one of them, woke up to find their partner murdered with a knife (laughs) the next morning like when you actually get really up close with these traumatic ends and people's really intense issues like it's not fun anymore like it's not it's not like spooky it's like um i'd like to check out i'm looking at the list of like famous people that have stayed there i mean like mark twain like <laughs> I used to part of, my, part of my tour was going to uh, was part of my ghost tour in New York. I used to have a ghost tour in New York was going to a house, the Mark Twain house where Mark Twain had lived for a year and people supposedly saw his spirit around there. Yeah. Ooh. And then there was a terrible murder in that house. Yeah. Unrelated. But. <laughs> oh, there's yeah, there's so many like celebrity deaths and like fatal awful but it's it's a really interesting if you ever want to learn about new york or if you're interested in celebrity reading about the chelsea hotel is a great entry point okay so now we're gonna move on to joan collins i was wondering if you would know her (laughs) cool i think she's a bit of a is she a bit of a drag icon? Is she a bit of a gay oh, icon? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a huge gay icon. Okay, great. Which is why I've heard of her. I haven't seen any of her work, but I know of her from the drag community. <laughs> right. So she was, is an English movie star who has appeared in too many films to name, mm. starting in the 1950s. Her resume is insanely long, and she's 88 now, and she's still working. She's alive? Yeah. <gasps> Joan Collins will never die. <laughs> <laughs> Good for her. What a 
does she look like now to the internet? She looks she when she was in the in the fifties and sixties, she looked a lot like Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah, they have a yeah. very the nineteen fifties beauty standard was very very feminine, very romantic, very heart shaped and petite. So she has these very wide set eyes. And she wears a lot of costume jewelry and a big wig. Oh, the wig. Yeah, the volume. (laughs) Yeah, she's been married a bunch of times. She looks great. So Joan Collins is interviewed and she, for her first little snippet, she says, I've never really thought about the paranormal too much because I I thought to think about it was unlucky. And I didn't want to let it into my life. Thank you very much. She has the most delicate English accent. It's not overwhelming, but it's just very light and lilting. So the year is 1995, and she's going to Venice with a friend of hers who's throwing a birthday party for her 18-year-old daughter. So they're all going sightseeing in Venice and to go on gondolas and all the tourist things that people do in Venice. So uh, her friend had rented a palazzo just off one of the canals. And Joan Collins didn't know anything about the palazzo except for that it had been built by a rich nobleman in the 17th or 18th century who was married to a very beautiful woman, which is, I think, an assumption you can make about most palazzos. (laughs) (laughs) She said, I thought it looked very ominous and forbidding, and the door was opened by a very ancient butler, and he looked about 90, and he looked as though he'd been there since the place had been built. So they go in, door is opened by this insanely ancient Italian butler. And there's this big interior stone hallway. And there were lots of, she says, really rather dreary pictures on the wall. And the rooms were decorated in, you know, that decaying Italian Rococo style. (laughs) Oh my God, read them for filth. (laughs) I know, brutal. But the thing is... It is like that, but it's also so beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. it's it wouldn't be better if it was new. Like, it, you know, there's ancient shit everywhere. Gorgeous. So these buildings where it's like, okay, well, that's like a pharmacy. It, like, on the side of that building, there's like a 400-year-old so st- piece cool. of stonework, like, almost like a gargoyle face coming out of the, the side so of the wall. Dumb. Like, these things wouldn't look better if they were new. Like, part yeah. of it, its appeal mm-hmm. uh, and of these... It reminds me a lot of New Orleans, where there's lots of um, inner courtyards and like stonework and things growing all over the place and Gosh. and old stone water fountains and things. Just it's it's incredible. So they go into the dining room and the table is set beautifully, lace tablecloth and gold goblets and gold utensils and all these silver wrapped candies all about and their their sugared almonds and Italians love them as after dinner treats. And she's right. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. So they're all having Italians love desserts that are not desserts. They're like, oh, it's so sweet. We add fennel. The sweetest herb, fennel. (laughs) Nothing says dessert like a good handful of fennel. Exactly. They're like, I make it sweet. It has pine nuts. (laughs) Which I respect. I I like that. They're all having fun and celebrating the young girl's birthday. But there's just a sense that things are just not quite right. Because the maids... They just look like kind of worried and like furtive and they're kind of like scurrying and like whispering to each other and just kind of looking around like they're expecting, I don't know, the phantom's chandelier to drop. (laughs) And the butler kept like shaking his head, shaking his head and saying, male, male, 
Mahler. Which means like evil. Oh no. I was like, yeah, Male, I'm bad. This is nothing. Uh, so then yeah, that doesn't like really set the vibe for like a for like an eighteenth. Um that would be very good for our eighteenth birthdays. Oh we would have time for that, that would have been everything to mm-hmm. me. That would have been everything to me. I would have been thrilled by that. Yeah. Um but I I I'm guessing these like wealthy English aristocratic type people oh. are not thrilled mm. that these doddering old Italians keep being like evil, <laughs> evil. <laughs> so one of the other people said that apparently no was no one was supposed to use this room because it was haunted by the woman in the painting on the wall. So there's this massive portrait on the wall. She's very beautiful. It's from the 16th or 17th century, and she had beautiful jewelry on, but she had a very unhappy expression on her face, and it looked as though her eyes were following you. You know, you'd look up, and she was just boring down on you. So Joan asks who the beautiful woman in the portrait was, and the butler, I can just imagine his voice. Some old Italians, I feel like they are running, their vocal cords are running fully on fumes. It's just like, <laughs> like it's, <laughs> there's, they've all, there's, they're almost reaching their talking quota for their lives. They, they've reached it and it didn't take that much to get there. <laughs> there's no more juice left. It seems that the women are born with a higher amount of juice for talking than the men are. And they just run out. As they should. Maybe it's just because it's, it goes, it goes, uh, it runs out out of ill use. It's like a, it's like an engine that hasn't been oiled. <laughs> they ask who Joan is like, um, excuse me, who is the beautiful woman in the portrait? And the butler just says that it was the mistress of the palazzo 300 years ago. And doesn't go any further. Oh. Male, 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 male. Shuffling away. It's like... So this is nice. (laughs) So it's very hot. It's September. And everybody is really dressed up. And Joan is wearing gray chiffon palazzo pajamas. Of course. And all of a sudden, she feels a shivering cold on her feet, like some sort of cold breath. And she mentions it to everybody. And she's like, I'm sorry, isn't there a terrible freezing cold draft in here? But everyone says that she's crazy because it's really hot to them all. So they told her it must be like an air vent below her. And I'm Mm. like, there's no air vent in this palazzo. The cool, it comes from the stones. The stones make the cold. No vent. So she she looks down and there's nothing. It's just like a brick or stone floor. And they're all like a little creeped out by that. Male, male, male. So while they're all like really sort of grasping at the tendrils of this lighthearted evening, trying to keep it free. Fun. And it's like, honey, you shouldn't have gone to Venice for that. So they're all a bit shivered by that. And the heavy, there's heavy windows in there, uh, which had diamond. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're not going to be excited by this. Uh, the, the windows are crisscrossed with like uh, lead muntins. Oh, so I it has you're... like a. 
I thought there was diamond encrusting or something. I was like, oh! No, no, no. This is Italy. It's encrusted with very spooky images. Um, so it has, uh, there's these uh, lead muntins in a diamond shape on the window. So okay. it's like those like little panes of glass. And the Cute. muntins are what separates them. And it's really heavy. And this window flies open <gasps> right after they're all like, is there a bit of a draft? No, it's it's September. <laughs> oh, then the window just flies open. Oh my. And one of the men goes to close it and he literally cannot get it to swing back. So the young maids are now like, they're like very nervous because they're like oh my fucking god this is not worth what they're paying Sean me. Collins is gonna get me before the ghost <laughs> so they're saying male male cativo cativo which basically means evil bad and if you google it there's literally like 50 words for Evil, bad, spooky, mm. icky in Italian. It's gorgeous. Love that. <laughs> um, and Joan asks them, and she's like, well, what are you on about? Why are you so nervous? And they're just like, this place is haunted. <laughs> <laughs> so after dinner, they retire to the drawing room. Some people are playing cards. Some people are playing Scrabble. Some people are, you know, wandering throughout the house. And then some of the teenagers kind of burst into the drawing room and they're like, you guys have to see this. So they all sort of gather, very clue. Everyone in this palazzo is all together going, huh? So Mystery. they go back to the dining room, and there on the floor are the sweet almonds in the silver paper in the shape of a body on the ground. <gasps> oh! Huh? Male. So she asks the butler about it and says, well, come on. Well, who's doing it then? Well, come on. Who, who, who's done it? Who's playing a joke? Nobody owns up to it. And the butler says that that's where the woman in the picture's body was found. <gasps> Joan is interrogating the teenagers and they're like, we didn't do I it. I that. swear. I'm about to shit my chiffon. <laughs> and at that moment, a large knife that was on the wall <gasps> shoots through the air and sticks itself into the opposite wall. Uh, no. And then a huge jardinier, which is like a, a, a big, heavy planter, uh, like ornamental planter, comes moving across the floor incredibly fast as though it had been thrown. They are all terrified. Yeah, that's a lot of aggression at once. Like a lot of can do actual harm. Oh, yeah. There's a knife flying through the air. So... I imagine they go to the other room and scream you, and yeah, leave. You can't stop a midair knife. So the butter, the butler, <laughs> speaking of stopping a knife, I was like, mm, <laughs> butter. So the butler told them eventually that the woman whose picture was on the wall was murdered by her husband after he had accused her of adultery and that he had stabbed her in the dining room and she had <gasps> fallen down where those little candies had been placed. And that her ghost did not want anybody to come into the palazzo. She's a good ghost. She's After, trying to keep us safe. I mean, safe from who? Her? Her husband. I think I don't think the husband's there. People haunt after they've died. I can see him doing it intentionally just to get her. Oh, people haunt after they've died? Mm-hmm. Some do. 
What what an interesting piece of phenomena. We should look into that. That's crazy. I know, right? Wild. <laughs> so they then hear all sorts of gossip that anybody who had lived in the house or who had rented the house for a considerable period of time had some terrible misfortune happen to them. Somebody had fallen down the stairs. Somebody had been accidentally shot. There was always misfortune in that house. And one of the reasons that the spirit was so angry that time was that usually the butler had told guests that the dining room was off limits and that there was just no eating in there. You don't say no to her. But this time, for some reason, he had allowed it or they had pushed for it. It seemed like it was against all of the staff's better judgment to put them in there. And they were just like, fuck, fuck. And Joan thinks that the spirit didn't want people in there, you know, laughing and drinking good wine and eating wonderful food while she would look down in fury. So Joan packed up her things and she did not stay another (gasps) night in that haunted palazzo. Hey, women supporting women. I'm here for (laughs) I don't know about that. I feel like it was a woman supporting a woman out of her palazzo. That's insane, though. That's, like, very scary shit. Yeah. When there's a real imminent physical danger. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ghosts don't do that a lot. What I love about this story and what I hate about... Well, there just seems to be so much of a ghost story documenting tradition in the English language like it's hard to find foreign language like mm, books of yes. ghost stories yeah um because i'm just uh, there's just a whole world of ghost stories that we're not hearing and experiencing just because the people there just don't speak english and they yeah. don't and their countries don't seem as obsessed as yeah. america and england and canada are yeah. with documenting them and putting them into cheap book format they've got such old old history i know if i could get a book of real italian ghost stories and not just like you know the famous like the man who was hanged under the bridge like i don't want just famous ghost stories i want like personal interpersonal accounts i want my ghost story tv show in italy oh oh can you imagine that would be such a treat that would be such a treat i, I know want, like that, firsthand interviews from people i believe there's a latin american mm. uh but yeah i i for now at least i rely on the stories of americans and english people who travel to these places and have yeah. these experiences but damn it if i wish if there were more that would be totally. that would be so wonderful So unfortunately, we're going to be leaving Venice and we're going to meet up with the warm embrace of Donna Derrico. She was like a playmate of the month in the 90s. She is a Pam Anderson contemporary. Mm, Okay. She was a co-star of Baywatch. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm looking her up right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was a regulation 90s hottie, probably on a bunch of posters. Oh, yeah. When it was all about the hip bone. <laughs> the most gorgeous part of a woman's body was just an unvarnished hip. <laughs> I want to see that pelvic girdle. 
Oh my god, yeah, she was in Sabrina the Teenage Witch in Reno 911. She was like that brand of celebrity at that point where I think she was randomly on shows like that. Oh, cool. I love that. Good for you, Donna. Hell yeah. Uh, Michael Imperioli of Sopranos fame, he plays uh, Michael Scott's, um, oh no, not Michael Scott. He plays Dwight's, one of his karate instructors. Oh my who, God! Really? Who comes with him to work whenever Dwight pro- finally gets his black belt? Oh my God! Yeah. So that was also that was that was really wonderful to see. That's uh, amazing to see Michael in a little karate outfit. <laughs> so Donna Derrico, uh, icon of the '90s actress, but like all hot people, she was once just a little child. So. She grew up moving around a lot because her dad is in the military. Mm. And so until she was seven years old, she was just like all over the map. And then when she was seven, they settled on the Georgia-Alabama border. Mm. When they move there, she doesn't have any friends. She's the new girl at school. Nobody really wants to hang out with her. She doesn't really know how to relate to other kids because she hasn't she just hasn't had many stable opportunities to do that. So she's really, really lonely and really like nervous to, she's just lonely and sad. But then Nancy came along and it was so wonderful. So their property was across from this wood wooded area and there was a lake. And so she was going there as usual after school one day. And there was a really pretty girl with long hair And she was by herself and she was walking towards Donna. And when she got all the way up the stream, she stopped and said, what are you doing? And Donna's like, I can't even imagine a seven-year-old named Donna. (laughs) (laughs) But apparently it's there. It's true. So then she introduced herself and she says, I'm Nancy. And then they just hang out that day. I love the middle-aged woman names. For these I know kids. Donna and Nancy. How cute! It is really cute. They're in accounting. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Donna is a playmate. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> so she was desperate for a friend, and she's so excited that she's talking to this person, but she's got to keep it under wraps because she is just so overwhelmed with yeah. her, her emotions. <laughs> Been there. Uh, yeah. So she keeps it inside as best she can, and she's so excited to be hanging out with another girl in her neighborhood, and she's really feeling happy. So one day, she invites Nancy over to have dinner with her, because she just doesn't even want her to go home. She doesn't want to say goodbye. Oh, I really identify with this. Same. I wanted to be fused to my friends, like, physically. Like, I didn't, I never wanted to say goodbye. Yeah. So one day, she invites Nancy over to dinner. And her mom is like, you have a friend? You have a friend coming? Yeah. Yes. 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 Like, of course. We can heat up another corn dog. So her mom gets another chair from the dining room, adds it to their table, and adds another setting. And then Nancy sits in it. And they all are getting ready to serve. And her mom is like, well, should we wait for Nancy? And Donna's like, She's sitting right there. And then her mom says, okay, stop. Should we wait for her? And then Donna realizes that they can't see Nancy. And she's really confused by this. She's only seven years old. So she doesn't really know what to make of it. And she just stays silent for the rest of the dinner. 
and just eats. Is she seeing Nancy the whole dinner? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. So time is passing and Donna's keep playing with her bestie Nancy and the family, her family realizes eventually that she's not joking with them. Like she's really seeing Nancy. But they just assume that she's an imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah. And Nancy herself never explained to Donna why she couldn't be seen by other people. Anytime Nancy would ask, anytime Donna would ask, Nancy would just shrug. And then they would talk about something else. Donna just tried not to think about it. The most important thing was she wasn't lonely anymore. And Donna was, and Nancy was really nice. So Donna's family indulged her basically as having an imaginary friend and being like, oh, don't sit there. Nancy's sitting there. And does Nancy want to come with us to the grocery store or whatever? That's nice. But their patience for accommodating someone that wasn't there was really starting to wear thin. And one night, Donna and Nancy are having a sleepover at Donna's house. And they were in Donna's bed, just like giggling and whispering with each other as you do in a sleepover. And Donna's dad is just like done with it he's in the den reading and she's up past her bedtime and he thinks that she's alone and that she's just like making a giggly racket by herself hopefully i i'm hoping that he would have had more grace if she actually did have a friend over but he keeps coming into the room and being like you need to go you need to be quiet you need to go to bed it's past your bedtime and then you do the classic like okay 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 i'm tired i'm tired i'm tired i'm going to bed right now right now right now right now (laughs) and then they leave the room and then Donna and Nancy are just like, <laughs> yeah. And they're just being little girls. Yeah. So they're giggling a ton and whispering and they get too loud again. And he storms in and he said, it's been five times now. You have to go to bed. There's nobody else here. And she said, but dad, Nancy. And he's and the moment she said, Nancy, he just exploded. And he was like, there is no Nancy. There's no one here. It's enough already with Nancy. This has to end. So he looks around the room and says, Nancy, are you here? It's time for you to go. I don't want you to come back. Oh, my God. (laughs) If I was his commanding sergeant, (laughs) I'm going to tear you up like a tissue at a snot factory. You don't crush your lonely child's dreams like that. Shit. Yeah, it's his fault she's lonely in the first place. Yeah, you're the reason she doesn't have little friends. So Donna's really upset and he leaves and she starts crying and Nancy is just deflated and she starts quietly weeping and she gets out of bed. She's wiping her tears away and Donna begs her not to go, but Nancy says she has to. It was extremely upsetting and Donna just cries and Nancy leaves. So sad that dad just let her in there crying after he yelled... So the next morning, Donna goes into the breakfast table before school and everybody's already sitting there in her family and they're all kind of tense and quiet and weird. And she knows that like something's up, probably right after the phone call with his commanding officer telling him to embrace the loving magic of an early childhood friendship. Love your child, Sergeant. (laughs) Be a present father. Drop and give her 20 kisses. So her dad asks Donna, did Nancy have long blonde hair and a white gauzy dress? And nobody had ever asked Donna what her dumb imaginary friend looked like. But she was like, yeah, 
that's exactly what she looked like. And her dad goes like completely ashen. And he told her that he had seen Nancy. <gasps> Wait, she wears the same thing every time she sees her? Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, she's like seven, so that wouldn't be a red flag, I guess. No, she's a little kid. She's not going to yeah. notice stuff like that. People on TV and cartoons wear the same clothes every day. I'd buy it. Okay, so I'm back true. on. I'm back on. After her dad had shut the door last night and she was mm. crying, he'd gone back to the den to read his book. And he hears a noise. And he leans out and looks down the hall. And he sees a little girl with blonde hair and a gauzy dress coming from Donna's room and down the hall. And she's quietly crying and he watched as she just faded into the front door and out of their house. And that motherfucker didn't say anything to her? <laughs> he was probably too fucking scared to do anything. Your child's imaginary friend just walked by you. <laughs> I don't know. If I saw a child sobbing in my house walking away, I'd probably, like, ask if I could get it something. You need a tissue? Morgan, I don't think that that is what you would do. <laughs> I've got to call bullshit on that. <laughs> we'll never know till it happens. Well, I hope it does happen. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> because that's not how you're going to react. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have a military brat, kid. <laughs> definitely going to join the military soon. It's on my list. So Donna is alone again. It occurred to Donna later that Nancy did, like... Never really pick anything up. She never really touched a lot of things. They were mostly just outside when they were hanging out. And Donna would always open the door for her and always get things for her. So her mom and dad decided to look into the history of where their house sat. They went to the library and they eventually found an old record from a couple hundred years ago where there was a young seven-year-old girl named Nancy who had drowned in the lake across the street. <gasps> And they knew that it was her. I love a family that does that research. Like, they went to the library to find this out. I love that. Donna says that she believes that she was to Nancy what Nancy was to her. Somebody to play with in desperately lonely times. Donna says she doesn't know what she would have been like if Nancy hadn't been around. And Donna prefers remembering her as just a regular little girl. She doesn't like to think of her as like a that fucked up period when I was seven and my best friend was a ghost. <laughs> Instead, it's just she was really lonely and then she made a friend. Oh my god. So the next time you ogle at the tiny, tiny hips of some Baywatch actress, you think to yourself... <laughs> She's just a lonely little girl. <laughs> and she needs friend. a friend. Did she ever live? Did she live in the Playboy Bunny house? Uh, I don't think so. Good. No. But that that was a that family is specific. That was a very specific. Not not every not every model that modeled for Playboy lived there. Holy shit. Thank God. I've heard Oh some, my god. This is not clean. And not the way you think. There's a lot of animal droppings, just loose. Oh my god, that's so funny that you say that. My one memory from watching that show where it was like, 
the bunnies show yeah like girl next door like girl next door my one memory from that is that one of them got a new little puppy and they were trying to chain train it with puppy pads and it was just really funny seeing a bunch of like bimbo identified women (laughs) clean up after the droppings of a tiny dog all right that is my is my little dip into the world of celebrity ghost stories (laughs) (laughs) celebrities only you guys have a spooky night, y'all. Filled with restless dreams. Of haunted celebrity things. Ooh. Ooh, lonely <laughs> children. Bye. Oh, lonely. <laughs> <laughs>